So the three takeaways for today's session are one, to better understand how climate change may impact your city. Two, how you can prepare and plan for climate impacts. And three, learn what some jurisdictions are doing to prepare. It's okay to take good ideas and steal them and use them yourself. This is Sarah Minu with the AWC City Voice podcast, where we explore the issues that impact Washington cities. For the second year now, AWC held its annual conference in an online format due to the pandemic. Similar to last year, we had a few live sessions available to attendees, as well as nearly 20 pre-recorded on-demand sessions. Registration for those on-demand sessions from conference is still open. We'll provide a link in the show notes, as well as more information at the end of the session recap. With that being said, for this episode of the City Voice podcast, we are going to be playing some clips from the conference session entitled Climate Change and Risk Management. The intro to this episode was provided by Paul Roberts, who was the moderator of this session. Paul is an advisor to AWC on climate change and resilience as well as an AWC past president. He was joined by Dr. Amy Snover, Director of University of Washington's Climate Impact Group, Allison Osterberg, Senior Planner of Thurston Regional Planning Council, Jessica Brandt, Associate Planner of the City of Lacey, and Jasmine Minbashian, Executive Director of Meadow Valley Citizens Council. Paul started the session off by speaking to AWC's contributions, and briefly recognizing some of the various organizations throughout the state that are helping cities prepare for climate change. In 2018 and 2019, the Association of Washington Cities, in conjunction with the Center for Quality Communities, published a study, Growing the Green Economy in Washington State. And that study specifically looked at sectors of Washington's economy that will be driven by climate change. And they include energy, water, agriculture and forestry, and building material. And in 2019, the Association of Washington Cities asked the legislature to do some further work in this, and a budget proviso was appropriated. And the Association of Washington Cities worked with the Department of Commerce and other state agencies and other actors around the state to develop more uh, completely a green economic development agenda. AWC has a lot of great partners in this work, Washington State University and the University of Washington, but also the Department of Natural Resources, Puget Sound Regional Council, McKinstry, HDR Engineering, and a host of cities on both sides of the mountain. And this year, AWC will publish a handbook dealing with climate action and helping cities prepare for addressing climate action, mitigation, adaptation, and green economic development. So this first handbook will be focused primarily on climate action plans, risks, and costs, but it is a bridge to the broader issues associated with climate change that will emerge in this this decade and beyond. We will now hand the conversation over to Dr. Amy Snover. Listen as she provides further insight on specific effects climate change has on Washington communities, what can be expected in the future, and how cities can prepare for these changes. Everything about our natural systems, our physical landscape, our homes and businesses and economies here in the Northwest, 
are what they are because of the climate we've experienced in the past. First and most importantly is to address the root cause, which means reducing atmospheric greenhouse gases. This is important because our future isn't written yet. Our fate isn't set yet. It will get warmer and warmer until greenhouse gas emissions are reduced. And how much it warms depends on how much and how fast we reduce greenhouse gases. So one of the major ways that climate change is going to affect the Northwest is through changes in our natural water availability. And we all know we depend a lot on mountain snowpack for delivering water to us from the wet season of the winter to the dry season of the summer. And that fuels our farms and our fish and our towns. So this is a significant transformation of the fundamental like mechanism driving our region, which is when and where and how water shows up on the landscape. We expect more water in the winter and less water in the summer. So that has consequences for everything that depends on water from irrigation to municipal water supply to hydropower production. We also can expect some threats to much of our critical infrastructure. So we can think about shoreline infrastructure being vulnerable to higher seas, electricity transmission being vulnerable to heat and wildfire, hydroelectric operations being affected by changes in timing of water supply, roads and bridges and culverts being affected by, again, the combinations of wildfire and increased runoff and heavier rainfall. Climate change also threatens the natural and cultural heritage of our region. We think about hunting and fishing, gathering, outdoor recreation, sense of place, and other things that we derive from our natural environment. And finally, we can also sort of think of another major category of impact being how climate change will affect our health and well-being. So there's many different climate-related health and community stressors from higher heat events, more water and vector-borne diseases, um, increasing wildfire and wildfire smoke, flooding and other hazards, and then especially uh, concern for frontline communities. Those who have been historically marginalized, those who are rural natural resource dependent communities and Native American tribal communities are considered to be on the front lines of climate change in our region. So I have some specific climate questions you might ask yourself when you think about work you're doing. You could ask, how does this action, decision, investment, program, law, whatever it is, how does this contribute to or reduce climate change? You can ask, what did I assume about the future when I made this decision? Am I assuming it looks like the past or have I updated it? And you can also say, how have I adjusted my activity or decision or program to ensure a successful outcome given the expected local impacts of climate change. The Thurston County region identified some of the risks that Dr. Snover just mentioned. We will now hear Allison Osterberg from the Thurston Regional Planning Council speak on a specific climate mitigation effort that looks at a lot of the information coming out of the Climate Impacts Group. So I'll talk a little bit about the Thurston Climate Mitigation Planning process. We developed the steering committee that guided the planning effort that was made up of elected officials and staff. They contracted with Thurston Regional Planning Council, our agency, to coordinate that effort. And we brought on a consultant team from Cascadia Consulting Group to provide some technical expertise around some of the analysis we wanted to see completed. And we also brought together a stakeholder advisory work group of subject matter experts across our community to help guide and provide input on the process. And throughout our process, we had 
a lot of public engagement opportunities. We did community events, we did surveys, we did public meetings both in person when we could have them and virtual uh, once we were no longer able to have in-person events. And what we heard throughout was a really heavy engagement by the community. We had a lot of public input on this process. And all of that culminated in the plan that we completed at the end of last year. So I'll walk through some of the, I think, the key pieces to what made that planning effort work. We utilized the greenhouse gas emissions inventory. This was assessment of what our locally generated greenhouse gas emissions were. It's completed by a group of nonprofit group, climate change advocacy group in our community who used a standard process of looking at emissions and they that helped break down our emissions by sector. And from this, we really learned that our biggest sources of emissions are from energy use in our buildings and from transportation. And that really helped us prioritize the type of actions we looked at in our mitigation plan. We also identified that in addition to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, what was important to our steering committee and to our stakeholders is that this plan not only reduce emissions and address climate change, but that it do so in a way that it supported other community goals that we had. So uh, creating vibrant city centers, preserving local environment and habitat, creating a robust economy, building our local food systems, uh, protecting public health. These were co-benefits that we wanted to see happen. And we use these by, uh, we developed a long list of potential actions that we might consider, and we prioritize them based on how well they would reduce emissions and also how well they would achieve these other community goals. We use our consultants then to develop uh, what they looked at is how the actions that we identified, we started with a long list, narrowed it down to a shorter list of about 70 actions, and saw what would it really take for us to meet those emissions reduction targets that we had identified early in the process. And one thing that was a real um, aha moment for us was seeing the role of some recent state legislation that had uh, taken place. Uh, our consultant was able to look at some of the recently completed state legislation, including the Clean Energy Transformation Act, updates to the building code, uh, vehicle efficiency requirements, and saw that those state policies collectively, those make up these gray bars, would get us a long way to our goal. And then our policies that we identified, our local actions, would be sufficient to get us to meet our 2030 goal, but that we would have to go above and beyond that to reach our 2050 goal. Uh, and that led us to look at carbon sequestration, uh, which was also of interest to our stakeholders as a way to reach our targets. So what we really learned through this process is that our targets, while they were really ambitious, were achievable, but it would take partnership with the state, a lot of us looking across different sectors, and carbon sequestration to get there. So all of that rolled up into what we call our climate mitigation framework, and that was included in the plan. And I won't go through all of this, but generally what we're looking to do going forward from now is looking at ways to shift our energy sources to electricity, supporting that state-level action, shift to a renewable energy, and shifting our energy sources um, to electricity so through electric vehicles and in our buildings. But supporting that, we also want to ensure that our region continues to grow in a way that supports urban neighborhoods, reduces waste, makes it easier to get around without single-use vehicles. Storing carbon is a key part of our framework. And underlying all that is building our local capacity 
to address climate change. And that includes making sure we're thinking about how the costs and benefits of climate mitigation are distributed across our community. A key part going forward, and Jessica will talk about this a bit more, is how did we go from planning to implementation? Um, we're just starting that process now. And we looked at the actions in our plan and divided them into four buckets. Some actions are things where we may not have the authority locally to pull them off and we'll need some support from the state. Those will become a part of our legislative agenda. We also identified things where the four partners would like to continue to coordinate together at a regional level to do them. So that can include some of our planning around transportation and planning around carbon sequestration. There, we identified things that individual jurisdictions can take on. Those might be related to programs, municipal operations improvements, or code changes. And there are some things we identified where we need support from our community, from third-party groups and our community to uh, take on some pieces of it with support from the local municipalities. So altogether, what are the ingredients to our plan? It really took all of these elements to get us to where we are today. We had a heavy, heavy interest from the public in seeing this plan to come together, and they really held all of our feet to the fire and made sure this plan kept moving forward. Even as COVID hit, we had a lot of other priorities. Uh, we heard from the community loud and clear that this was a priority for them. We had great buy-in from all four of our jurisdictions. Um, the elected officials who served on our steering committee were very committed to seeing this process come together. We had um, excellent contributions from the staff at each of our four jurisdictions who brought different expertise in public health and public works and planning many different facets. And we really saw that um, we needed to be working with the state and understanding what was happening at the state level in order to achieve our own goals. Jessica Brandt provided her insight and key takeaways on that process from the perspective of the city of Lacey, a city of about 50,000 residents located in Thurston County. I think the number one thing is that just, you know, regional collaboration takes time, but it is worthwhile. It is so worthwhile. We were all able to really start heading in the same direction. All of our communities participating were kind of in a different spot with climate mitigation, but they were all, they were all trying to work on it. And so it really helped us share resources. I think, too, the idea that, you know, regionally we could all bring our strengths to the table. Every community, you know, has, has the things they're already doing. They already have things, certain things in place, and they also have some weaknesses. Another takeaway is just <laughs> Probably pretty obvious. Expectations vary among cities and constituents. We have elected officials sitting on our climate mitigation steering committee. And, you know, there was from every jurisdiction, there were some different opinions about timelines, actions, level of engagement, just kind of the topic in general. And I think it was just important to remind ourselves of that every once in a while. We're all kind of in a different place, but we're all at the table and we're all going to work through it and talk about it. Giving to just the residents and businesses in the cities of Olympia, Tumwater, Lacey, and the county just have different ideas about priorities and investment as well. So as the elected officials are trying to represent their constituents, that was something that came up quite a bit, just the idea of what the expectations were and how, how much they varied. It really helped in this regard to have clear agreement, scopes, and contracts. So early on through this process, over two years ago now, um, we negotiated timelines, scope of work, the structure of our meetings, created interlocal agreements, and it really came down to just really good project management. Of course, ongoing engagement from residents, businesses, and nonprofit communities is essential, and ongoing education is really important, we found. I mean, we have so many upcoming projects and potential implementation options that we really want to make sure how do we keep our stakeholders updated, let them know opportunities for input, 
And TRPC created a really nice shared project website where everybody could go and get the same information, regardless of whether they were in Lacey, Olympia, or Tumwater out in the county. And just, I thought that was really helpful to have just kind of that ongoing informational platform. Another key point that I think is also maybe pretty obvious, but not every jurisdiction is going to implement the same things at the same time. We had the shared framework, we all agreed on it, but we all started from different places. And so as we started working through those action lists, we all realized that certain things were already ongoing and underway. Certain things felt like something we needed to really start then focusing investment on. This leads me to setting up a framework for sustained implementation and monitoring. Now, how are we going to be accountable to our constituents and our partners? Again, we were trying to think about the end while we were planning in the beginning. I mean, we didn't have to figure it all out from day one, but we'll be recognizing that it's a step in the process and having an ongoing program that you need to implement and monitor. That's something that you really need to build into your process pretty early and figure out how to embed that in your, in your community, in your city, in your staffing, which is my last point. Staff is needed to work on implementation. You have to have some conversations about reprioritizing resources, just how do you reprioritize who you have, either adding new or reallocating time. Like I said, the city, it's an ongoing conversation right now. And as with any plan, it doesn't get implemented without resources and program management. So as Elton touched on local capacity, that's definitely a huge topic and a really important takeaway as you get involved in any sort of regional planning. Our final speaker was Jasmine Minbashian the executive director of a nonprofit organization based in the city of Twist. She shared a little from the perspective of a community task force dedicated to organizing a climate adaptation and resilience plan of its own and what they have learned so far throughout that process. A lot of people in our community had originally thought, well, we don't have a lot we can do here to impact global climate change because we're such a small community, we're so rural. But when we looked at really our role in the bigger picture, we saw that we played a huge role. So we got together and we thought, okay, we, we've got to do something about this. Unfortunately, many of our towns are really small with tiny budgets. Same could be said for our county government. Not a lot of capacity there, not a lot of staff. Most of the climate plans that we looked at were really conducted by towns. And we thought, well, how are we going to do this? We kind of looked around and said, what strengths can we draw from in our community? And one of those strengths was strong commitment to civic engagement. And so we, we drew off that strength and we convened a citizen-led task force. We're just going to create a time-limited task force to come together and bring together the different agencies in the community, our towns, our elected leaders, scientific experts, and we're going to develop a plan on our own. And it was a daunting task, but I wanted to give a shout out to the GEOS Institute, it's based in Ashland, Oregon. They have an incredible website. They've been involved in consulting with numerous climate plans across the West, especially with rural communities. And so we drew heavily on their resources. Um, they pretty much all but provided a template like a do-it-yourself climate plan kit. <laughs> and we drew on that. It offered a blueprint for us to develop a, a local climate plan. We made sure to involve not just self-selected groups, but we really encouraged and did active outreach to make sure that all the different sectors of our community were represented. The end result is we came up with some really specific um, outcomes that we hope to achieve. And from these, we built um, action steps. 
the actions in it, depending on the action, live in different places. Some of these actions are really on the individual to take on. Some of them are on, going to be on the towns. Some of them are going to be within the different nonprofits that provide different services. And some of it is going to take our whole community coming together and taking it to our state elected leaders or looking for opportunities at the federal level. Another piece that was really important from the get-go is equity. It's just profound how much climate change really has a disproportionate impact on um, a huge part of our community. And so addressing that head on was really important to our task force. We had to really think through how we were gonna implement this without really hardly any resources or staffing. And there's a group that's formed, it's a committee that's just tasked with implementation. And they are creating a whole model of climate action groups to really make sure that different pieces of our climate action plan do get carried out and are held accountable. This would not have been really as successful as it has been if not for the towns willing to participate and provide staff to be part of our, not just our task force, but our sector groups. We learned through, through this experience that there are so many resources available. Getting young people engaged was really, really important. Their voice, their presence really helped us focus because it constantly reminded us of why we're doing this and what's at stake. We made sure that the task force represented all sectors of our community because climate preparing and adapting to climate change is really gonna be a, is a cross sector endeavor. Those are the, the key take homes I just wanted to leave you with and, and, and let you know that it is possible to create a community driven climate action plan with very little resources and ensure that it's implementation. When, when there's a need, uh, you find a way. I'd like to take a moment to thank this session's moderator and speakers for offering up their time and expertise. The full session is just over an hour long and provides even more information. You can find links to our annual conference registration in the show notes or by visiting wascities.org. The AWC City Voice podcast is a production of AWC where our mission is to serve our members through advocacy, education, and services. Please note that the audio clips from this session were edited for length and clarity. As always, thank you for listening.